Welcome, Bankless Nation, to this episode of Alpha Leak. Alpha Leak episodes are where we go and dive into a specific project in the crypto space and just go from zero to 60 about what it's doing, uh, what it's up to, why it's different, and why you might be interested in diving down the rabbit hole even further. Today on this episode of Alpha Leak, we're talking to Michael Bentley from Euler. And Euler is a money market, much like Compound and Aave, also much like Fuse as well, Rari's Fuse Pools. And Euler's trying to do the best of both worlds of these two different models for producing a money market. We have the shared liquidity model of Aave and Compound, and then we have the long tail, uh, long tail of assets model with Rari Fuse Pools, and Euler's trying to find out how it can have the best of both worlds to both enable the long tail of assets, but also maximize capital efficiency. They also have some other things that they've tinkered with. They've messed around with like the liquidation mechanism uh, and innovated on that, as well as the interest rates uh, mechanism as well all in the name of preserving capital efficiency and making Euler a highly utilized money market in the world of DeFi. They launched their DAO and their token just a couple months ago. Uh, the, the first application of Euler came online, I think in, de in December is when Michael said it, said it came online, and which is like a hairy time for a market, a money market to go online in DeFi because since December, we've had like six, seven straight red months. So really getting stress tested in its first genesis on DeFi and it has held up very, very well. So. I hope you guys enjoy this episode of Alpha Leak. And if you want other shows, if you want me to dive into other projects, other shows, other tokens, whatever, let me know on Twitter and I'll do it in Alpha Leak on this episode if people request it the most. So let's go ahead and get right into this episode with Michael Bentley of Euler right after we get to some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Nexo is your financial hub for all your crypto needs. Nexo lets you buy crypto instantly with your credit or debit card or via bank transfer. They also have an awesome advanced trading platform called Nexo Pro that pays you rewards when you swap crypto assets. And Nexo also lets you earn interest on your crypto in Bitcoin, ETH, or other assets. And they also give you an instant crypto line of credit with as low as 0% APR. And they also give you access to a crypto-backed MasterCard of course, earning you more crypto when you use it. So enhance your financial life with Nexo, who ensures all credit lines are over collateralized with insurance on all custodial assets. Nexo, the right place for your crypto. So click the link in the show notes to join over 5 million users who are getting the most out of their crypto. The Layer 2 era is upon us. Ethereum's Layer 2 ecosystem is growing every day, and we need Layer 2 bridges to be fast and efficient in order to live a Layer 2 life. Across is the fastest, cheapest, and most secure cross-chain bridge. With Across, you don't have to worry about high fees or long wait times. Assets are bridged and available for use almost instantaneously. Across's bridges are powered by UMA's optimistic oracle to securely transfer tokens between Layer 2s and Ethereum. Across's critical ecosystem infrastructure and Across V2 has just launched. Their new version focuses on higher capital efficiency, layer two to layer two transfers, and a brand new chain with Polygon, all while prioritizing high security and low fees. You can be a part of Across's story by joining their Discord and using Across for all of your layer two transferring needs. So go to across.to to quickly and securely bridge your assets between Ethereum, Optimism, Polygon, Arbitrum, or Boba networks. Arbitrum One is pioneering the world of secure Ethereum scalability and is continuing to accelerate the Web3 landscape. Hundreds of projects have already deployed on Arbitrum One, producing flourishing DeFi and NFT ecosystems. With the recent addition of Arbitrum Nova, gaming and social dApps like Reddit are also now calling Arbitrum home. Both Arbitrum One and Nova leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum and provide a builder experience that's intuitive, familiar, 
and fully EVM compatible. On Arbitrum, both builders and users will experience faster transaction speeds with significantly lower gas fees. With Arbitrum's recent migration to Arbitrum Nitro, it's also now 10 times faster than before. Visit Arbitrum.io where you can join the community, dive into the developer docs, bridge your assets, and start building your first dApp. With Arbitrum, experience Web3 development the way it was meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. Welcome, Bankless Nation, to this edition of Alpha Leak. Today on the show, I have Michael Bentley, the founder of Euler. Uh, you probably, when you read it, you probably read Euler, but it's Euler. Uh, Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, David. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers. So let's go ahead and get right into it. What is Euler? Euler is a permissionless lending protocol on Ethereum. Uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with Compound and Aave, two of the probably most uh, popular lending protocols on Ethereum. Uh, Euler is, is similar to, to those protocols, but with a whole bunch of innovations and things built in uh, that we've been developing uh, over the past couple of years. Um, so we can dive into a couple of those uh, in the show, I'm sure. Um, but more or less, that's it. It's a lending protocol. Users come and lend their assets. Other users borrow assets from those lenders and pay them in interest. Right. So this is you know DeFi basics, right? People put collateral in, they borrow against their collateral. People do this all the time with Compound and Aave, uh, which is a competitive market to try and penetrate. So we're going to talk about some of the strategies that, that Euler has to uh, penetrate what is already like a pretty saturated market with Compound and Aave. Um, what would you say is like the main differentiator between Compound, Aave, uh, and, and Euler? Uh, I would say it's the risk framework that Euler's implemented. Uh, and the risk framework, which we'll dive into, um, is a consequence of the fact that we're permissionless from from the outset. And mm -hmm. permissionless by permissionless, we mean that anybody can create uh, their own lending and borrowing markets uh, on this protocol. Uh, and that creates a whole host of problems and a whole, whole host of attack vectors. And that leads you from the outset to have to really think about risk in very different ways and really to consider a, a much bigger um, yeah, scope of possibilities. And so our risk framework, I think, is extremely comprehensive. Yeah, let's talk about why why can't a money market like Aave or Compound just list every single token under the sun? Like, why why can't we have every single asset inside of Aave or Compound? Yeah, great question. There's a uh, a range of possible like yeah possible answers to this. I think probably one of the biggest reasons is comes from oracles. So an oracle is uh, a place where you go to to get the price of an asset. And you need to know the prices of assets on a lending protocol so that you can say how much can a lender, uh, you know, how much can a user borrow. Um, when they've put in $1,000 of collateral, you want them to be able to borrow less than $1,000 uh, of assets. Otherwise, if they could borrow more than that, they would just keep the difference and walk away, right? So you have to really know the prices of assets and uh, getting the prices of assets is really difficult. Uh, both Compound and Aave rely on Chainlink oracles Chainlink's a third party that um, aggregates prices uh, uh, from contributors uh, and puts those prices from uh, centralized exchanges and a variety of other places on, on, on chain for users. Um, unfortunately, it's very difficult to establish a Chainlink oracle. It's often quite expensive to put uh, prices on chain like that over the year, over the course of a year. And, uh, and so you can't just hope have Chainlink Oracles running for every asset. It just wouldn't be economic to, to run that kind of system. So, Because um, of the gas fees, right? Like every single Oracle for like every single price feed and like there's thousands and thousands of assets on Ethereum. And if we want to put 
all of these assets into a money market like Aave or Compound, every single one needs to have their own price feed. And the way that Chainlink works is it publishes that price feed on a transaction on chain, which costs gas. And so like you have to multiply the number of transactions by the number of assets. And so like assets like uh, I mean USDC, WBTC, Ether, like the main the big assets. Like the, there's enough demand to borrow these things that it's economically viable to put these price feeds on chain. Like we can pay those those gas fees. Chainlink can afford it. But for like the long tail of assets, the many 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 thousands of other assets, like there's not enough utility in borrowing these things that to justify the on chain price feeds. So that's like one one restriction, right? Is that a good way to summarize it? Perfect. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, it's extremely costly, as you mentioned. I saw some estimate that in in March 2020, when there was this big, um, you know, volatile period, Black Thursday in in the crypto mm -hmm. ecosystem, uh, for a single price feed, it might have cost a million dollars in gas fees just to maintain one price feed. So, um, yeah, you can see that in volatile periods, it's expensive to to take this approach. So, right. what, and in, what, in volatile periods are when the price feeds are required the most. Like that's when you need. Yeah. That's when DeFi needs these prices to be accurate, or else DeFi will fall apart. Absolutely, yeah. So, so what's the alternative? Uh, the, the the approach that Euler uses is uh, it uses decentralized price feeds that, that are read from the Uniswap uh, decentralized exchange, Uniswap version three. Uh, and what's what's cool about this is that Uniswap runs. Um, all the time, it's never offline, and the prices are generated by traders themselves. We don't need specialized third parties or keepers or any, any other third party to come and put those prices on chain. They're just on chain because people are trading using Uniswap. Uh, so Unis using these uh, price oracles has some, some challenges, which we can maybe dive into later as well, but ultimately uh, what, what anything that's listed on Uniswap as a decentralized, uh, comes uh, equipped with a decentralized price oracle, and Euler can then use that. Uh, to establish prices for assets and then and then build upon that to, to allow people to lend and borrow assets. Okay, yeah, so we'll put a pin in the gameability of a Uniswap market as a price feed. We'll talk about that later because that's definitely something to discuss. Um, but like that's this is like the big, in my mind, the big of two reasons uh, the how uh, Euler can allow every single asset in Ethereum to become Part of its uh, in part of its vaults, right? In part of its uh, money market, because it uses Uniswap for a price feed instead of Chainlink, and so like Uniswap it has in proxy, Uniswap is an oracle, right? Like what is the price of this token on Uniswap? Euler consumes that data for price feeds and allowing uh, Euler to have more assets inside of its its application. So that's, that's like one main difference. I think the other one though, as to like why why can't Aave or Compound just list every single asset under this under the sun is like collateral risk. Uh, and, if, and so I, in, my, in my mind, these are the two big things that prevent a money market from being able to list every single asset. Can you talk about Euler's strategy with like uh, collateral risk? Yeah, sure. So we've got the, the state of Euler as it is today and then where it's going in the future as well. So I can give mm -hmm. you a little bit of uh, sort of an alpha leak about, about that as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, you're absolutely right. If you allowed everything to be used as collateral, uh, to borrow, you know, you could borrow against any old, any old asset, um, any old, you know, the latest dog coin or whatever that people are kind of aping into, uh, things would go wrong extremely quickly. Um, and that's because these assets are extremely volatile and the essentially the collateral backing all these loans would quickly evaporate in periods of volatility. Um, and that would affect lots of assets at once. In fact, it would lead to what people often refer to as contagion, where one loan fails to get repaid, that kind of drives the, you know, 
a thing called, a process called liquidation happens, which drives prices down further, which means more loans are then under collateralized, which means you know more liquidations, prices fall, and so on. Um, yeah, this is really bad, uh, and is most assets generally aren't suitable for use as collateral. The way that Euler addresses this is through risk like risk various mechanisms around risk isolation. Uh, on Euler, there are three tiers of assets. There are those assets that can be borrowed against. They're called they they form the collateral tier. You can lend, uh, you can borrow, and you can use those assets as collateral. And there are currently only seven assets on Euler that can be used as collateral, which include the usual candidates like stable coins, but also uh, you know big blue chips like ETH and, and Bitcoin. Um, yeah, beyond that, we have these other asset tiers and uh, where things can't be used as collateral. And furthermore, there are some restrictions on what you can do to in uh, sort of a margin trading environment. Um, and by default, when people create new lending markets on Euler, they end, they, they begin life in this kind of restrictive, uh, restricted um, kind of mode where they can't be used as collateral. Um, and so that allows this permissionless aspect, essentially risk isolation, things by default can't be used as collateral and then through governance you can actually promote things to be used as collateral. Um, so that's the state of Euler as it is today. Um, a lot of people do want to borrow against longer tail assets though and that is a use, you know, legitimate function that the market can potentially service. A few other protocols have tried to enable this in the past um, with varying degrees of success. People might know about Cream um, and uh, Rari Fuse Pools and so on. I think the way that Euler will develop in the long run is uh, that there will be uh, a kind of main Euler protocol and then beneath it something akin to like a Rari Fuse type pool uh, system where they have these little baby Eulers that essentially get established below the main protocol um, and liquidity will flow in through the main protocol into these baby Eulers uh, and that will um, yeah, enable people to borrow against uh, a whole load of assets without posing additional risks to the main protocol. Yeah, so the way I've explained this to some people is that yeah, Euler is really going, trying to go after the best of both worlds between Rari and Compound, Compound or Aave. These, Compound and Aave are interchangeable for these purposes, where uh, you have what you what you call like baby Eulers, where uh, you have the highest risk assets, like the isolation assets, that are allowed to um, be borrowed against in isolation, and it's not connected to the main hub of Euler, but it's just like this one market, it's like one raw fuse pool. And then Euler governance can allow these assets to like go up into like a, a, more, a pr more premium tier, right? Uh, and so you have like um, isolation tiers, which is like the riskiest assets. Then you have cross tiers, which is like the medium assets. And then you have collateral tiers, which is like the things that like behave like money, basically. Um, Bitcoin, Ether, stable coins. Uh, and so the, in these isolation tiers, that's like a, that's like a Rari fuse pool. And then like the collateral tier is something like Aave or Compound where like it's a shared liquidity model. And the, the beautiful thing about Aave and Compound is that when you uh, like borrow or when you lend USDC to the protocol, you lend it out to simultaneously people who are putting up uh, Bitcoin collateral, Ether collateral, uh, like you know, Uni collateral inside of Compound. And so it's very like capitally efficient because the same amount of USDC supplied to Compound is shared behind a, a variety of borrowers uh, because these borrowers have all put up good collateral like Bitcoin, Ether, like these money-like assets. But you can't do the same thing for something like extremely risky. Like you, it, like if you did it for every single token that was just and permissionlessly allowed any token to. 
become collateral, you would have like the event of somebody would like uh, you know mint a bunch of tokens, start providing liquidity in Uniswap to create a price, uh, and then that that token could just be borrowed against inside of like Euler. But then because this person made this token, they could like infinitely mint a bunch more, and then that token in, as collateral inside of Euler would go to zero, and then they borrowed all that USDC and ran off with it. Uh, and so like th this is what uh, while there is this need inside of DeFi to have these like one-off marketplaces like raw refuse pools, uh, you can't have this connected to the main hub because you need to like prevent that contagion, right? And so this is, in my mind, this is where Euler is trying to get, Euler is trying to get the best of both worlds where it has these isolation tiers, but it allows, governance allows to, uh, these things to elevate uh, into better and better collaterals. I, I, I think you might've uh, mentioned cross tiers, but can you go into like cross tier, like the middle tier and, and how, what assets what assets go into cross tier, and like how are those are different from the other two? Yeah, so the um, uh, the the first tier is iso isolation mode, where you can only borrow that asset in isolation. Uh, the cross tier, although we kind of color it in this orange color, and it looks kind of like a middle tier, it's probably still quite close to the lower tier, closer to the lower mm -hmm. tier than it is to the collateral tier. Essentially, cross tier just allows you to cross margin trade. Um, you can put up collateral, borrow multiple assets at once. And your whole collateral will be at risk at this point. You could be borrowing, say, SHIB and LINK and UNI all from the same account. And uh, essentially, all of your whole pool of collateral will be at risk if one of those loans goes wrong. In the isolation tier, you would put up some collateral and you'd borrow SHIB. And that would be it. If you want to borrow LINK, then tough. You have to go and set up a new account. Um, that would be a real pain, of course, and um, if you had to, you know, fund multiple Ethereum addresses and so on, and people don't like doing this on Compound and Aave. So another innovation that I'll, I'll mention very briefly is that to enable this, because we're isolated, forcing this isolation on people for riskier assets, uh, we, we do also provide uh, this this uh, feature called a sub, sub accounts. And these are accounts that actually belong to an Ethereum address, but within the context of Euler and its protocol can be used as like an entirely new account. Uh, and so you can fund like multiple multiple positions at once from a single Ethereum address inside Euler. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, so just to go through it one more time to make it like crystal clear, you have isolation tiers, which if you want to um, use these assets as, uh, or if you want to borrow these partic this particular isolation tier asset, you put up collateral, and that collateral is then locked into that one position, as in that, can, that, that collateral cannot also be used for another asset. It is just one account. You put like $1,000 like of ETH in, and then you can borrow this one token. And that $1,000 of ETH that you have as collateral can't be used as collateral for another token. Then you have cross tiers, where like you have $1,000 of ETH, and that can be collateral for multiple tokens. Uh, but those tokens cannot be collateral because they are not of the collateral tier, which is like the third and highest and best tier, and that is preserved for. Like I keep on saying, like money-like assets, and the reason why I say that is like money-like assets are money is like highly decentralized, it's highly uh, liquid, it's highly available, like global marketplace. Like you can you know the demand for these things are there, and so it's very safe for a money market to have money-like assets as collateral. And so like, again, that's like the USDC stablecoins, WBTC, uh, Ether itself, and like I could even see like many many more DeFi blue chips. Kind of elevating themselves to collateral tier, like things like uh, Aave and Uni that we kind of assume aren't going there. I don't know if they are in the collateral tier yet, but just like a comment on just how DeFi works is that like the more money-like 
your asset is, whether it's a whether it's like a DeFi token or actual money like USDC, the more money like it is, the more like good collateral it is. And so like when Euler governance determines like what assets belong in what tiers, it's like the collateral tier that's like the money tier. And like everyone wants to be in the, in the collateral tier. Uh, am I on track here? Yeah, more or less. In fact, I would say, um, I mean, my opinion on this, I'm super, super con conservative when it comes to collaterals. And uh, when you mentioned like adding new collateral tiers like DeFi blue chips, the real problem with those is that um, when you use something as collateral, you have to guarantee that there's always a willing buyer out there to, to take on board that collateral if someone's debt needs to be paying. Now, unfortunately, even for DeFi blue chips in, in liquidity crises, like the ones we've had in the past couple of months with 3AC and all the rest of it and Celsius happening, um, the, the, like the, the number of willing buyers for those uh, tokens has, has decreased dramatically. So on Euler, we, we pushed through a governance proposal um, before, before the project started to decentralize to actually uh, decrease the collateral, decrease yeah, the collateral factors on a few assets. And we actually removed uh, Matic, um, the, the token um, from the Polygon project um, outside of the collateral tier. And that's not because we, you know, we don't like Matic or don't like the project or the team or whatever. Um, unfortunately, if you plot the liquidity profiles for this on, on decentralized exchanges, you can see that it was a, an extremely liquid market for a long, long period. But in recent times, it suddenly became an illiquid market. And that's really dangerous. If um, you know, if someone, if someone with say ten million dollars worth of Matic uh, could put that up as collateral and borrow say five million dollars worth of uh, you know USDC, what you want to be able to do at all times is guarantee that you can take that Matic and swap it for USDC. And if there's no liquidity on decentralized exchanges or there's no liquid, no willing buyers for that Matic and willing to make that trade, then unfortunately it's not suitable for use as collateral. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm super conservative when it comes to collaterals. I think risk first and then capital efficiency second. Um, and like I say, I think in the long run, we'll have this this additional functionality, which isn't isn't uh, there yet on Euler, but which has these kind of siloed pools where people can then use some of these longer tail assets in a siloed pool as collateral um, in the future uh, and borrow against them in a, in, a, in a siloed sort of risk managed isolated environment. Right. And well, it definitely after we've seen these drawdowns for the last six months, everyone's kind of like repricing how repricing risk in Massively. a different way. It's like, oh, yeah, like, uh, yeah, let's let's be a little bit more risk averse these, these yeah. days. Um, OK, so like these are the in my mind, the, the, the two features that really stand out about Euler that differentiate it from things like Compound, Avi and Ave and, and Rari. Uh, and so you have on chain pricing oracles from Uniswap V3 uh, and then you have this more flexible asset uh, collateral tiers that allow for just like more higher fidelity with what assets can do what you know inside of a money market, and so these these properties these features of Euler just open up uh, assets to the long tail, right? Like we can now allow for the long tail of assets to gain access to Compound and Aave styled money market features. Can you talk about like this as a strategy and what this can do for DeFi and how this is useful and overall just like why accessing and providing financial services to the long tail of assets is important? Yeah, sure. I mean, from, from the outset, I mean, we wanted to create a permissionless lending protocol. We wanted something that was Uniswap-like um, without these kind of gatekeepers. And uh, I don't think, you know, the, the Chainlink system is it's extremely functional. It's worked very, very well, but it does end up a side consequence of the way that system works is that essentially what what the, the Chainlink kind of uh, system decides is, is worthwhile having an Oracle for ends up being a kind of 
a process that also determines what you can lend and borrow. And that doesn't really seem, seem appropriate. So philosophically, I think it's aligned with the kind of vision of, of decentralized finance to have a system where anybody can lend and borrow any asset, depending on their own risk appetite and so on. So there's, there's that as a starting point. We want to kind of eliminate the, the gatekeepers from the system. Um, on a design point and, and what this means for actually building a protocol, it's super important because when you start by assuming that everything can go wrong, um, you build a protocol that's far more, far more robust in my opinion because you have to check every little feature. Um, and so I'll give you an example on when other projects have forked the Compound protocol uh, compound, fantastic project. It was, was the inspiration I used to, to sort of uh, get into a, a DeFi with Euler. Um, but it wasn't built with all sorts of crazy markets in mind. It was built to service a smaller number of, of markets. And that's absolutely fine from a design perspective, but it meant when new projects came to fork the code, the code wasn't suitable to be used for certain types of assets. On the other hand, Euler assumes the absolute worst about your token. If you list it on Euler, we assume that you're malicious, that you're a scam, that you have weird functions that do stuff that they shouldn't. If we ask for the name of the, the, the token, we assume it does something weird and tries to scam the, the protocol, right? Every little thing uh, we have to assume can go wrong. Um, and we assume this hostile environment from the outset. And so that means that Euler was built as a protocol with a whole new bunch of defense mechanisms in place um, to, to handle malicious assets. And I think in the long run, that will put it in good stead in terms of being able to survive in the in this hostile environment that DeFi often is. Um, and then, uh, yeah, in terms of what can be done with the assets once you have these lending and borrowing markets, I think today the, the functionality um, for the long tail is somewhat limited on Euler. Um, mostly you can borrow assets uh, from the long tail. And if you want to borrow assets from the long tail, what would you be using that for? Well, mostly it's it's people hedging positions. It's actually traders essentially borrowing and then selling the underlying assets uh, for short positions. So we do see some activity on this in the ecosystem and that, that kind of mentality has been building through these bear markets really. Um, one particular trade that was really uh, interesting to people was shorting stake teeth, for instance, and hedging out that risk. People already had exposure to stake teeth, um, may know about the you know the volatility in that particular market recently. Uh, we're using Euler to borrow and then sell stake teeth and kind of uh, bet against uh, stake teeth falling against ETH. Um, so that, that was an interesting use case for, for an asset that, that we haven't really seen on compounded Aave. Um, in the in you know that that's a limited use case though it's really just for traders I think um, it does generate some benefits for holders of these tokens if you're fundamentally long your your precious long tail asset you should be quite happy if you want to hold on to that asset for the long run you should be quite happy to let somebody borrow and pay for the privilege of shorting it right you know earn some interest to let some speculator kind of bet bet against your project. Um, I, I I personally would be happy to do that for lots of tokens. Um, but um, in the long run, people still want to be able to borrow against some of these assets, and that's where these the the, the future of Euler is. You know, provides some functionality there. I think, like they do on these rare refuse pools, you can deposit the asset. Let's say it's a long tail asset or some kind of meme coin, uh, and then you can essentially say, I'm going to use this as collateral to borrow USDC from somebody else, and the the USDC depositor, um, you know, will probably expect a higher interest rate. Right? They're they're essentially 
taking on board more risk because you're you're using a riskier collateral to to um, service this loan. But ultimately, I think that's a, a you know a, a big use case as well in the long run is allowing people to take these count these two types of trades, these long short trades against one another. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, there, there's a whole whole host of possibilities that, that can get unlocked, especially as uh, that long tail gets built out. If you've been listening to Bankless, you know that we're fans of the modular blockchain thesis. The idea that blockchains will separate execution from data availability and consensus, allowing all three to become the best versions of themselves. And Fuel has built the fastest modular execution layer in the industry. By supporting parallel transaction execution, Fuel unlocks significantly faster throughput for the Web3 world. Fuel also goes beyond the limitations of the EVM with its own Fuel VM, which is more efficient and optimized, opening up the design space for developers. And lastly, Fuel brings a powerful developer experience with its own domain-specific language, Sway, and a supportive toolchain called Fork. With Fuel, you can have the benefits of smart contract languages like Solidity while adopting the improvements made by the Rust tooling ecosystem, letting the Fuel development environment go beyond the limitations of the EVM. If you want to learn more, there's a link in the show notes to see how you can get involved with the Fuel network. In all of my years in crypto, I have never been hacked, scammed, or lost money to a thief. And a lot of that credit goes to my Ledger hardware wallet. The Ledger Nano X and the Ledger Nano S Plus hardware wallets allow users like you and me to secure and manage all of our crypto assets and our NFTs, all with the security of storing users' private keys offline and out of reach from hackers. The Ledger Nano X is the perfect hardware wallet for managing your crypto and NFTs on the go because it connects to your phone with Bluetooth and has a nice big screen for easy transaction readings. Ledger has also upgraded the iconic Ledger Nano S and made the new Ledger Nano S device more DeFi and NFT friendly, making it the perfect hardware wallet for beginners. Ledger has truly maximized for both ease of use and security. So discover which Ledger device is best suited for your journey by going and visiting shop.ledger.com. The Brave Wallet is your secure multi-chain on-ramp into Web3 and is built directly into the Brave privacy browser. Gone are the days of managing multiple wallet extensions that put you at risk of phishing, spoofs, and tracking. With the Brave Wallet, you can securely manage your crypto assets across more than 100 different chains, including Ethereum, Layer 2s, Solana, and more, all without downloading risky extensions. The Brave Wallet is easy to set up and removes the headache of jumping between wallets and extensions. It's lightweight, but packed with great features like built-in token swaps, buying and holding NFTs with a gallery view, and support for hardware wallets. But also much more than that, because Brave is shipping new features every single month with a mission to make Web3 easier to navigate for its over 55 million users. Wallet extensions are a thing of the past. So get started with Brave's Web3 Ready browser today and experience a decentralized web seamlessly without all the clutter. You can download the browser at brave.com bankless and click the wallet icon to get started. Well, what are some other uh, unique properties of, of Euler uh, that, that we haven't uh, discussed yet? Yeah, I think one of the, uh, there really is a ton of stuff. I think one of my favorite um, features on Euler is the, the, the way we completely uh, redid li the way the liquidations work. Um, liquidations are mm. one of the most important and fundamental features of a, of a lending protocol. And uh, I think the system that was initially, originally uh, developed for Compound works relatively well, at least worked quite well for a time, but has has started to show cracks and so Euler yeah totally redesigned it to, to have a new system. So b before you explain it can you kind of just explain what's the status quo of liquidations in money markets for a compound in Aave like how does a position in Aave get liquidated? Yeah sure so you let's say you, you deposit your collateral you've got a thousand dollars and you borrow five hundred dollars of something. Now uh, let's assume you're, the asset you borrowed starts to increase in price so uh, it might increase up to eight hundred dollars 
At that point, the, the protocol starts to look at this position and go, hold on, if this keep, it keeps going the same way it is, you're gonna have more debt than you have collateral. So at that point, the, the protocol allows a liquidator, uh, which can be anybody, uh, to come in and repay the loan on your behalf. And so what they will do is they'll take $800 of your collateral and they'll swap that for the $800 of the asset you borrowed, they'll repay the loan and leave you with the, the, the difference. Now, nobody's gonna do that uh, altruistically, right? We're, I'm sure we're all nice people, but no one's out here wanting to waste gas on paying other people's loans for them. So usually the protocols need to offer some incentive for that purpose. Uh, and what they do is they have a fixed discount, usually five or 10% uh, of the collateral asset, and they allow the liquidator to, to buy the asset at that discount. So you can think of this as, as a bonus for the liquidator. On, a hun on uh, you know, $800 worth of collateral, the liquidator might get an $80 bonus, and they get to keep that for themselves. So, uh, and that's a 10% bonus, right? So this works really well. It sounds quite nice, right? It's a really effective mechanism to make sure that the protocol stays solvent because loans get repaid when they start to look risky. The big problem, of course, is that um, if you take that loan that I just described and scale it up, and now imagine that you've got somebody like Celsius or somebody borrowing, you know, depositing $100 million worth of collateral and borrowing um, $80 million worth of assets. Now take 10% uh, as a bonus for the liquidator and it really starts to look painful, right? The Celsius are going, what the heck, we're losing um, you know, millions of dollars in, in liquidation bonuses. And of course, it's completely unnecessary as well. The li like liquidators don't need to be given you know, millions of dollars worth of bonuses in order to have this incentive. Most people would, be, would happily perform a liquidation, which ultimately costs you know, a, a small amount of gas. They'd probably be happy to do it for $1,000, for instance. Um, and furthermore, yeah, when you get these big bonuses, the liquidators often don't even get to keep them. You have this problem where um, uh, the, essentially the, most of the bonus ends up going to the miners through a process called a priority gas auction or through uh, something called minor extractable value where the miners are able to kind of take most of the bonus away from the person doing the liquidation. So that, that's the problem. Um, and uh, it's not good for the protocol uh, because it means that more, yeah, more debt is repaid than is necessary. Or, or sorry, more collateral is removed from the system than is necessary. It's not good for the borrower because they end up losing more assets. It's not good for the liquidator because it goes to the miners. So you've got a system that's really just there benefiting miners uh, and people using these MEV bots. Um, so what does Euler do differently? Uh, we have a system whereby the, the bonus that the, the um, liquidator gets starts at zero and then rises as the position changes in value. So what this means is that the bonus, that the percentage bonus that the liquidator get usually depends on the size of the loan. For really small loans, the, mm -hmm. bonus, the bonus might need to be you know, 10%. It might need to be that the liquidator gets $80 to cover their gas fees and make some profit. But if you've got an $80 million borrow, um, you still only need you know, a few thousand dollars probably to pay to settle that loan. And so the bonus will end up becoming a fraction, the percentage bonus at least will be, end up becoming a fraction of the actual um, loan taken out. Massively to the benefit of the borrower. It also benefits the protocol because more collateral remains in the system. So the protocol remains sort of more solvent um, and the, the liquidators still win. Um, yeah, we actually have a system which I won't go into as well because it's also, also quite technical, but which essentially kind of 
mm-hmm. uh, stops even even amongst the smaller bonus. It's actually even stops the the MEV bots from trying to steal that smaller bonus from the from the liquidator as well. So it's we call it an MEV resistant uh, liquidation process. And this is a little bit like a Dutch auction of sorts, right? Where the bonus starts small and then grows larger over time. And as soon as that bonus becomes sufficient where a interested liquidator is sufficiently interested, then it gets liquidated. Uh, And so it's like trying to optimize for the minimum amount of capital loss throughout the whole system where the borrower loses, pays the smallest amount of fee possible and uh, there's a minimum amount sent to MEV miners uh, and like the, the liquidator uh, just takes whatever deal that is uh, the, the soonest deal, the smallest deal that's, that they are actually interested in, in taking. And so this allows for a depositor to feel more comfortable depositing more money into Euler because they know that like if I do get liquidated, I'm going to be liquidated for the smallest amount possible, allowing for like more capital efficiency in the space. Uh, so like it, it's it's kind of just like an elegant mechanism that you know that, that optimizes for the most efficient amount of liquidation possible. Um, what's pre- but what's preventing something like Aave or Compound just integrating this as well? Like why can't they just follow this model too? Yeah, I mean, they, 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 they probably could do. Obviously, one of the nice things about DeFi is that the code can be kind of borrowed from other protocols. Um, and mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, if, if, it's, if it does prove itself as being a, a resilient mechanism for liquidations, I expect other protocols to do this. Um, we have actually seen some, some like, uh, the, the guys at uh, Angel um, have also used mm-hmm. this process in their, their liquidation flow now. They've kind of, inspired by the Ola protocol, designed this into their... Um, euro-based stablecoin. So uh, I think we will see more protocols adopting this type of approach, to be honest. I wouldn't be surprised to see future iterations of Compound and Aave have a new liquidation uh, module that, that at least borrows from these ideas. Um, but certainly right now, Euler is, is more competitive on that front. We've seen we've done some analysis on retrospective liquidations, and you can see the liquidation bonuses um, uh, much, much smaller on Euler in general. Uh, for instance, we had a, a, a million dollar die liquidation um, opposition liquidated some time ago, and the, the liquidation bonus paid was $4,000, which as a percentage of the, the loan is really quite small. Um, you know, arguably, if, we, if there was a more competitive environment for liquidation bots, this was quite early on in the, in the protocols, um, sort of after its birth, really. Um, yeah, I think in the long run, you'll see more competition, and even that $4,000 might be, might be brought down to an even lower lower amount. So yeah, it's um it's super cool right now and definitely definitely benefits borrowers. Yeah, this the timing of Euler's release on mainnet kind of reminds me of uh, MakerDAO's release. When Maker MakerDAO uh, released on mainnet in December of 2017 at the top of the market. Uh, and then you know, minted people will go in and mint a bunch of mint a bunch of die at like one thousand dollar ETH price, and over the course of the year, that one thousand dollar ETH price fell down to eighty dollars. And like MakerDAO was given like for for its Genesis event in Ethereum, just the biggest stress test ever because it launched at the top of the market, and so it was just a test on like the liquidation efficiency of MakerDAO. Turns out it, it survived with flying colors, and and Euler is about the same. Like you guys launched, uh, uh, when did you guys launch, and like how has the whole like market turbulence impacted Euler. Like, how has Euler uh, operated during like all of these like turbulent times of high volatility? Yeah, it's um, we we launched in uh, the we first deployed the protocol I think in uh, early December, 
uh, and then uh, we started with just uh, I think two or three uh, collateral assets, and then progressively soft launched the rest of the protocol. And there's still bits now that, that are you know still being launched. Um, so it was a it's definitely an iterative process. We wanted to do it feature by feature, part by part, to, to kind of mitigate the risks because lending protocols do generate significant risks if not done you know done carefully, but. All through the process, uh, the protocols performed admirably, and it's been, um, as you mentioned, there's been, I, I would say probably um, three major stress tests for the protocol since its conception. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which has been fantastic to see it perform. You know, whilst there's been drama going off elsewhere in the ecosystem, uh, yeah, DeFi protocols like Oil have just been sort of ticking away, doing exactly what they should do. Um, a real testament to the. Uh, the way that DeFi works, that it can just withstand such hostile environments. Mm-hmm. I don't think you'd see many TradFi sort of institutions withstand the kind of pressures that most DeFi protocols come under. Um, and yeah, oil has performed sterlingly all the way through. Yeah, that's definitely been the theme that we've been talking about at Bankless is like all of the CeFi companies are breaking and all the DeFi apps are doing just fine. Uh, but usually when we say these things, the DeFi apps, people in their heads think like, all right, Uniswap still exchanging, Compound still online, Aave is doing great. Uh, but like, it's also worth noting that Euler is right there with them, also didn't break, and is also brand new, right? And so like also has yeah. the minimum amount of Lindy and still didn't have any problems. Like, you know, granted inside of crypto, like things break all the time, there are rug pulls all the time, but also it's worth noting that there are times when something can come to market in like an extremely hostile market environments and if you build it right like it works just fine that's pretty cool yeah i mean it's super yeah super exciting for me as well and it was a, a nerve-wracking period as well. <laughs> I you, bet. you know you don't you know it's not ideal circumstances to launch something new um so but yeah i mean it's it's even better for us though after the fact to come through that with flying mm-hmm. colors i think is uh helps lend uh, credence to the kind of work and all the efforts that have been put into making sure that Euler is robust and secure against all these like nasty environments that it it might potentially face. Um, Yeah, it's a great validation of all that work that we put in ultimately. Mm -hmm. I always say that um, things that survive these kind of periods, you know, when when everything's going up and everything's just fine, you can get a lot of garbage kind of floating up as well because they just come under no stress test whatsoever. So you can have protocols that list anything as collateral that haven't like, you know, audited their smart contracts properly and so on. Um, and it's only when when things turn actually that you really start to see who did their homework and who actually put in put in the efforts to make sure these things are robust to all environments and not just you know favorable ones. Absolutely. Let's move on to another cool property of, of Euler, which is your guys's interest rate mechanism. Can you talk about the the what the status quo for money markets is with interest rate mechanisms for um, like Compound and Aave, how they charge interest based on like a particular algorithm, and then how Euler is different. Yeah, sure. So I, I'll start by clarifying and saying these are, our interest rate mechanisms aren't live today mm-hmm. on Euler. That's one of the features we will progressively aiming to roll out um, and we can I can explain why that is but yeah I'll tell you about how interest rates are set generally in the market um, on, on lending protocols so usually um, if you take a pool that's got say a million dollars of supply in it and um, you have uh, you have some borrowers come along uh, the interest rates usually determined as how what percentage of the pool is being borrowed at any one time so if it's 10% of the pool that's being borrowed you might get um, a 10% interest rate if it's 50% being borrowed, then that interest rate might go up to you know 40% or something. And if it's 100% borrowed, then uh, it, the interest rate goes up yet further. And it might go up to say 100 or 200% or something. 
Usually um, it's an exact kind of um, relationship though between the percentage of the pool that's borrowed and the interest rate that you get out the other end. There's like a one-to-one -one mapping there. And what that means is that the, the whoever was in charge of sort of setting the interest rate model at the start of the process has to kind of get the, the market dynamics right. Um, they have to kind of map this, um, this, this process onto the, onto the market in a way that makes sense for that market. Um, if you step, set the interest rate uh, to increase really steeply as a function of the percentage borrowed, then you're kind of making the cost of borrowing more expensive. Um, and that might inhibit the market from ever getting started. Like if we just have a really, a really steep slope for how much the interest rate increases as a function of the borrowing, then you might just never get any borrowers because everyone's just like, oh, holy, this is too much. So you set a, a more shallow slope, right? You think, oh, well, we'll just decrease the, the rate. And if you set a more shallow slope at the rate at which interest increases, then you can get too much borrowing. You've basically underpriced the cost of borrowing for the market. And then everyone comes in because it's super cheap to do it on, on this protocol. And then they, they the pool gets 100% uh, utilized. You know, there's no more lending supply left. And that's, a really bad that's really bad news for the lenders because A, they're getting less interest than they really should be for the market rate. And B, uh, you know, if you own 10% of that pool, if you're deposited, you know, $100,000 and you want to go and withdraw it, you can't because that your assets are out there right now being borrowed by somebody else. So, um, yeah, you need to get strike some middle ground where you want um, the pool to be somewhat borrowed from, but not entirely borrowed from. Ideally, you want something like, you know, maybe 60, 70, 80% of the pool to be borrowed from at any one time. And that kind of maximizes the interest rate for lenders while still allowing most people to just withdraw. So um, yeah, it's hard to set those functions. It really is. You need governance to be on top of the game and uh, you need the markets to be kind of predictable. And that's usually not the case in crypto. Things are very unpredictable uh, as we know. So what can you do differently? This was the very first thing I started looking at when I um, started working on Euler back in March 2020. Uh, I was looking at how Compound worked and thinking, how could you do this differently? And I realized that there's a system you can use that works similar to the way that the thermostat works in your home. Um, it uses a branch of maths called control theory. Uh, and the idea here is that the, um, you know, if you think about a thermostat in your home, it's measuring the temperature outside all the time and then trying to increase or decrease the temperature inside your home to keep that, the temperature inside the house fixed. Uh, and with interest rates, you want to do the same, but you want to keep this percentage of the, the pool that's being borrowed from roughly fixed. You want to keep it around 70%. And you can actually do that by adjusting the interest rates. If the, if the um, percentage of the pool that's being borrowed from goes above, say, 70%, you want to increase interest rates uh, to prohibit more borrowing and make it more attractive to lenders. And so that brings on board more lenders. It stops borrowing which then brings the interest rates back down so that the utilization stays at 70%. And you can have the same type of process happen below. Like if you end up uh, having really low amounts of borrowing from the pools, uh, you can reduce the interest rates. That prohibits more lenders coming on board and also stimulates more borrowers because it's now cheap to borrow from oiler than, it, you know, cheaper on oiler than it is elsewhere. And that brings utilization back up to, to, to the 70% target. So uh, yeah, this is, this is a new type of mechanism that's similar things have, have been trialed more recently as well. Um, but I think we were one of the innovators of this idea and it's something we'll be you know, proposing to the DAO to roll out at some point this year um, when the conditions are right. 
Right. Users who are, or excuse me, listeners who are familiar with Rye, the stable, the stable coin Rye, uh, this is also how Rye works as well. Like it uses, it's a self-referential like input. Uh, and so it uses its own data to kind of inform interest rates. Uh, it's just like a, it's a little bit of a, of a self-referential loop to create this output. Uh, and so it, it, this is, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is like one of the, uh, the many strategies in Euler to become like a more permissionless governance minimized lending market, right? By not having this like fixed, rigid interest rate mechanism and instead having this like control theory based interest rate mechanism, that's like, um, something that we don't have to leave up to governance anymore because this thing just governs itself. It's literally called a governor. There's a there's like device that really allowed for um, what's it called steam engines to work, and it was a, a mechanism called a governor. That when the steam engine would get too hot, the governor would open up and let this exhaust out, uh, and then when it would cool uh, when it would cool down, the governor would close and keep the heat inside. And it was this like naturally like balancing mechanism that made the steam engine not explode. Uh, and so like we see the same like self-referential like equations built into Rye the stablecoin to price Rye. And now also you guys are using it, using it at Euler to have like more stable interest rates or may maybe more volatile interest rates, but more stable asset utilization. Asset utilization being kind of like the important one from like a protocol revenue standpoint. Because if you can keep that revenue, the asset utilization inside of a money market like Euler high, that means like the, the system can charge fees on that more stably, right? Like you can maintain that high utilization rate uh, and have that be stable and not have that fluctuate all the time. Like the area under the curve of how many total, what's like the total supply of uh, assets to Euler will maintain uh, a more efficient and, and higher level, allowing the system to like charge more fees on it. Right? It's just like when Uniswap allows you to concentrate liquidity, it generates more volume, allowing Uniswap to generate more fees. And the same strategy here is that this, this interest rate mechanism for Euler allows for more assets to be deposited and utilized so it can charge more fees to the users. So it's just like an economically advantageous system. Would you agree with all this? Yeah, more or less. I think that's that's pretty much right. I think you you can think of a pool that has zero utilization as being like liquidity on Uniswap that's out of range. It's just mm -hmm. you know kind of unutilized capital, and it's capital inefficient to to have that. I you know really for capital efficiency purposes, you want utilization always to be in some kind of Goldilocks zone um, where the lenders are always earning an interest rate, mm -hmm. uh, earning some interest, you know, earning yield on on their deposits. Um, so you you really don't want, you really want to try to avoid low utilization at all costs, um, so that the the you know. Uh, the protocol is kind of working effectively. And ideally, in the long run, that this is how this will work. It remains to be seen if this will work in practice, by the way. I'm really intrigued to see how this how this works when it goes live. Um, it does depend on a few factors um, that should be mentioned. So you really need people that um, arbitrage interest rates uh, for this to work most effectively. So you need people that are really sensitive to these, these changes in interest rates. If they go up too much, they kind of stop borrowing. If they go down too much, they start borrowing. Um, so it's clear that we see that for some assets, you know, with uh, yield aggregators like Yearn Finance will arbitrage interest rates quite effectively across protocols. But um, yeah, will we see this for all assets, for long tail assets? It remains to be seen. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll, this will be something we'll be proposing to the DAO to kind of trial on an asset by asset basis and see how, how effective it is. 
Yeah, Michael, let's talk about the DAO aspect of Euler. Uh, when did the DAO launch? And can you just talk about the, the DAO details and the token details and all the details around these things? Yeah, uh, the DAO is now being live. What are we talking? A couple of weeks. I was extremely ill when the DAO launched. The, the last few <laughs> no. weeks for me have been like a blur. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the DAO is now live. People can make proposals and they can vote on the proposals of others. Uh, there's a token uh, that enables this functionality called OIL. I call it OIL, but it's actually, the ticker is E-U-L. Um, <laughs> so yeah, um, people, uh, the, the users of the protocol receive OIL uh, or E-U-L when they, uh, when they borrow from the protocol. So if you're one of the kind of core protocols users, um, then uh, you receive governance rights as a, whilst you're using the protocol just as kind of passively uh, and then yeah you can make proposals and vote on on how the protocol works in the long run on some of these contentious issues like uh, should something be used as collateral uh, on various factors controlling like risk in the protocol and on some of these bigger uh, questions like should an asset use um, you know a reactive interest rate like the one I just described or, or uh, one of the kind of old, old school interest rates like we see on Compound and Aave um, yeah, may may also be able to vote on things like the Oracle that the, uh, an asset uses as well. Like uh, there are some markets where it's clear that maybe a, a an asset might be better serviced by a Chainlink Oracle than a Uniswap one, and so uh, that's a, an integration that we think might be useful as well. People can vote and say, okay, clearly Chainlink's doing a great job for this asset, so let's use let's kind of upgrade or, or switch out the the Uniswap Oracle for the Chainlink one in this particular case. Okay, awesome. Michael, if people want to go learn more about Euler, where should they go? Uh, I would follow uh, the Twitter accounts of myself and uh, Seraphim. Um, so you can, yeah, you can find me at Euler underscore MAB. Um, I've forgotten, forgotten Seraphim's, but you can come to our website as well uh, and check it out. Uh, Euler.finance is the one that we, the, inter the main interface to the protocol. Uh, and app.euler.finance, uh, yeah, is where the users can begin lending and borrowing assets. But uh, we, yeah, all the documentation, I would really recommend people to read the white paper. That's at docs.euler.finance. Well, Michael, of course, thank you for coming on and, and explaining Euler to me and the Bankless Nation. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Really enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully we'll have another chat another day about some other stuff. No, absolutely. We'll get all those links into the show notes as well. So if you're watching this on YouTube or on the podcast, uh, the link should be in the show notes. So you can just go click those links there. All right. Risks and disclaimers, everyone. Of course, crypto is risky. DeFi is risky. You can lose what you put in. We are headed west. We're on the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we are glad you are with us here on The Bankless Journey. So thanks a lot.